Welcome to the Institute of Men podcast, where we are figuring out what kind of men we want to be and pursuing that vision relentlessly for the rest of our lives. We derive wisdom from what is ancient, traditional, and from the greatest men in history. My name is Keaton Tucker, and I want to thank you for listening. Today, we are talking about St. John Chrysostom and how we can learn to love our wives at the standard God requires. podcast or you haven't hit that subscribe button, go ahead and do that now. And if you would be so kind, leave a five-star review. If you want to get into heaven, leave a comment. It is guaranteed entrance into heaven if you leave a comment on your favorite listening app. Thank you for listening and supporting the Institute of Men. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Institute of Men podcast. My name is Keaton. Just like I said in the intro, I hope you're doing well wherever you're listening to this. If you're listening in the car or on a treadmill or lifting weights, whatever you're doing, I do. I thank you for listening. I, I'm very appreciative to everybody who listens to this podcast. Uh, I want to please apologize. <laughs> I want to please. I apologize for the sound of my voice today. I have had some sort of cough all week. I was actually coaching CrossFit earlier this week, which I do as a hobby. I I coach at this gym right down the street. It's a lot of fun for me. And I do it just like uh, six hours a week. And during one of my classes, I actually lost my voice and, (coughs) excuse me, and I started As I was trying, I'm see, I'm coughing right now. I'm not going to edit this out because you can't edit your life. So I'm just going to let it be what it is. Uh, that's a philosophy I have. You can't edit your life. You have to make the most of it. And so I don't edit this podcast very much except for adding the music because that's just how life is. It's good for us not to have everything perfect all the time. But anyway, I was coaching. I lost my voice and I'm trying, I'm straining, straining, trying to get my voice to work for this class. And it starts squeaking like ham in the sandlot. You know how I'd be like, play ball. My voice started doing that and everybody in the class thought it was hilarious and they started making fun of me. So I apologize for the way my voice sounds today. Please bear with me. Uh, I'm just trying to make sure I get a podcast going uh, for you guys. And uh, this one is going to be just as much for you as it is for me, which we are going to talk about. You know, so on this podcast, we, I say it in the intro every single time that we're trying to figure out what kind of man we want to be by learning from what is ancient, traditional, and from the greatest men in history. And today, we're going to be learning from somebody who is all three. Uh, We're going to be learning from St. John Chrysostom. He is ancient. He was born in 347 AD. Uh, So he's ancient. He is traditional because he helped build the Christian tradition, and he is one of the greatest Christians who has ever lived. I was was reading a biography summary on him in preparation for this podcast, and his life was quite amazing. He actually ended up dying in exile, being essentially tortured to death. He was really old. He was in political exile because he had, if I remember correctly, he had asked the queen... I believe, to remove the silver statue from in front of the cathedral. The empress, this is in Constantinople, didn't like it. And so they came into the church that he was the bishop of while they were having you know, service, 
sent everybody out and took him into exile and then burned down the cathedral because you know states that's what they do they burn down churches and so they he's basically walk they walked him to death they you know they stripped him down made him naked walk him the hot sun you know constantinople where it is it's i believe it's modern day turkey and it's you know beat the sun's just beaten down he's really old uh, really really old four so he died in 407 so he would have been <clears throat> What? Uh, well, I guess he's not that old. He's 60. Oh, he's oh, he was just slightly older than my dad. So he was not that old because my dad's not that old. So but anyway, he was sick. So that that's how he died. But anyway, he, he was born in the middle of the Aryan heresy. So he wasn't born into a Christian family. He became a Christian at age 20. But he was born in the middle of the Aryan heresy, which I did a I did two podcasts on this. One was called Did St. Athanasius Save Christianity? And then the other one I did kind of a follow-up. And it was about the Aryan heresy. And Arianism is basically the theology that still exists in the Unitarian Church. It was a belief that Jesus was not begotten, that he was not co-equal with God, that he was not of like nature with God, that he was a creation of God. So and it, it was a like I said in that podcast, a small thing that turned into a big thing. Uh, very slight uh, heresy that this guy had instilled, and it took over a much of Christianity. That's where the Nicene Creed came from, and and then Arianism still flourished. It would have destroyed Christianity. You and I would not be Trinitarian Christians if it wasn't for a man named St. Athanasius and all of the other you know faithful Christians who stuck to cr- Trinitarian doctrine. If it wasn't for them, over the course of fifty years, there would be we wouldn't be, we probably would not be Trinitarian Christians. It, Christianity would have been turned into Unitarianism, which would have been too bad because, again, it's a heresy. So that's he was born during that period, and he became he becomes a Christian at the age of twenty years old. He meets a bishop, and be, and that's when he starts his journey, <clears throat> and then he would go from there to be considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest preacher in all of church history. Uh, he, and we have a lot of his sermons, we like a lot of his sermons and you can read through them and see, you know, he was remembered as a great orator and then you can read his work. He was a prolific writer. He wrote series of sermons on, I believe it was every book of the new Testament. I think it was every single one. Uh, the Bible had officially been canonized during his lifetime. And so he basically took it upon himself to so like, I'm going to expound this for my church and for all of history. And we're going to be looking at one of his sermons from the book of Ephesians. He wrote 24 sermons on the book of Ephesians. Now, that, Ephesians is six chapters. He wrote 24 sermons, and each sermon was really long, really long. Like the one we're going to be going through today, we're probably not going to get through the whole thing. Or I know we're not going to get the whole thing because it's so long. And he's citing Old Testament and, you know, all of it. And so we're, we're, and he goes verse by verse. He's an exegetical preacher. So we're not, we're not going to get through all of it, but we're going to get through mo- a good chunk of it. Now, today's going to be a little different because I am in just as much need of you as to learn about what we're going to be learning tonight. Today, we're going to be learning about how to love our wives, or if you're single, how to love your future wife. And I need this just as much as you. Uh, If you don't know, me and my wife, we've been married for three and a half years, which means I recently crossed crossed that threshold where I went from thinking I knew everything about being a husband, everything about being about 
marriage to, oh, I don't actually know anything. And it's amazing when you cross that threshold. You were like, man, how was I so patient and kind and generous and thoughtful and considerate that first year of marriage? And now I'm like, oh, I forgot to kiss my wife this morning. <laughs> you, you literally just you cross this threshold around two and a half years. Maybe it's earlier for you. I don't know. I cross it around two and a half years. <clears throat> it's like, oh, man, I don't actually know how to be a good husband anymore. And I also have the privilege. We have two kids. I have a two and a half year old and I have a nine month old. So you can do the math. We had our first child two days after our one year wedding anniversary. And when you, when you're a father for the first time, you're the greatest parent that's ever lived that first year. I will never be a better parent than I was that first year. I knew everything. My daughter was one and I knew how to parent teenagers. It was amazing. I'm kind of jealous of myself because I will never be that good of a parent again. But I crossed the, (laughs) I hope you know I'm joking. I sort of joking. I probably, I did think I was the greatest parent who'd ever lived. Like every person who's been a parent once. (laughs) And then you quickly realized, ah, man, when my daughter learned, it was amazing. My daughter learned to talk and to talk back to me and suddenly I didn't know I didn't know how to parent anymore. Uh, um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, so I crossed the threshold of realizing, oh, I don't know anything about parenting and oh, I don't know anything about marriage at the exact same time. So I need to learn from somebody who is ancient, traditional, and one of the greatest men in history on how to lie, love my wife better. So what I'm gonna do today, normally I read something or I think about something, I write it up and I commentate and I I give my opinion or I give my thoughts. I give, you know, today I'm just going to read his sermon and I'm going to point out where I need to improve. Now, you'll probably have areas where you hear you're like, oh, I need to improve there. I need to change my thinking there. But I'm going to point out where I need to improve. So I've read this sermon a few times and every time it's struck me and every time I've walked away being like, yeah, I, I, I definitely need to do that or... Yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm not good here. Okay, I, yeah, I should. So I, I'm going to just read it and point out where I need to improve. Now I might point out a few other things along the way in this sermon, because, um, but that's mostly what is going to be my focus today is pointing out where I need to improve. Now again, it is a long sermon, so we're not going to get through it all, but we are going to get through a good chunk of it. Okay, so. Let me scroll back to the top. The pat this sermon is taken from Ephesians 5:22 through 24. And this is what it says: Wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, being himself the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject to their husbands in everything. Now, that you're going to be like, oh, he's going to tell us how to get our wife to submit to us. Ha ha ha. No, he is not. He is not going to do that. He and we'll talk about it just a little bit, but he will quickly move on. So here we go. A certain wise man setting down a number of things in the rank of blessings, set down this also in the rank of blessing. A wife agreeing with her husband is a good thing. And elsewhere again, he sets it down among blessings that a woman should dwell in harmony with her husband. So he's quoting a wise man named Ben Sirach. 
which is in the book of Sirach. Okay, if you're if you have never read uh, the book of Sirach, it's a deuterocanonical book. So if you're Protestant, it's not going to be in your 66 books. If you're Catholic, it's one of those. It's in the wisdom literature. You can look it up online. And indeed, from the beginning, God appears to have made special provision for this union. And discoursing of the two as one, he thus said, male and female, he created them. Now, uh, real quick, one thing to remember about this sermon, it was originally written in Latin. I'm pretty sure it was originally written in Latin. You know, Latin uh, was the Roman language. It was the language of the empire. Everybody knew Latin. They also, you know, almost all of them knew Greek. The reason the syntax on this sounds funny is because it's Latin. Okay, so it's not it's not modern English. You're like, this sounds very King James. It's like, well, uh, I mean, I think uh, if I remember right, the King James is. I don't ever look. I actually don't remember if the King James is taken from the Latin or from original manuscripts. I don't remember. Okay, um, so uh, he thought. He thus says, male and female, he created them. And again, there is neither male or female. That's from Galatians 3.28. For there is no relationship between man and man so close as that between man and wife, if they be joined together as they should be. And therefore, a certain blessed man too, when he would express surpassing love and was mourning for that one that was dear to him and of one soul with him, did not mention father nor mother nor child nor brother nor friend, but what? Your love to me was wonderful, he says, passing the love of women. Okay, so that's a quote from uh, Song of Solomon. So what he's doing here in this passage, he's saying, or in this sermon, excuse me, he's setting the stage. There's no greater relationship than what a man has for his wife. None. It's not the, the love for your wife is greater than the love for your mother, for your father, for your children, for anything. And it, it, it is the most precious love that you can have within earthly relationship. Okay. That's what he is saying uh, to this for indeed in, in very deed, this love is more despotic than any despotism. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, <laughs> for others indeed may be strong, but this passion is not only strong, but unfading for there is a certain love deeply seated in our nature, which imperceptibly to ourselves knits together these bodies of ours. Thus, even from the very beginning, woman sprang from man, and afterwards from man and woman sprang both man and woman. Perceivest thou, <coughs> perceive? <laughs> do you perceive the close bond and connection? And how, excuse me, <coughs> voice stuff, and how that God suffered not a different kind of nature to enter in from without. And uh, he's talking about Jesus was born of woman. And Mark, how many providential arrangements he made. He permitted the man to marry his own sister, or rather not his sister, but his daughter. Nay, nor yet his daughter, but something more than his daughter, even his own flesh. Okay, so uh, really, really Old Testament. <laughs> if you want to go read that. Uh, you know, uh, it's in before Genesis 12. And thus... The whole he framed from one beginning, gathering all together like stones in a building into one. He made all of humanity. He's basically saying he made all of humanity from uh, two people. For neither on the one hand did he form her from without. And this was then this was that the man might not feel towards her towards her as an alien. Nor again did he confine marriage to her that she might not by contracting herself and making all center in herself to be cut off from the rest. Thus, as in the case of plants. There are all others the best, 
which would have a single stem and spread out like a number of branches, since all were confined to the root alone, all would be to no purpose, whereas again it had a number of roots. Okay, you're losing me, St. John Chrysostom. <laughs> you're losing me a little bit. From one man, Adam, he made the whole race to spring, preventing them by the strongest necessity from ever being torn asunder or separated, and afterwards making it more restricted. He no longer allowed sisters and daughters to be wives. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. Lest we should be on the other hand... Con- contract our love to one point and thus in another manner be caught off from one another. Hence Christ said he, which made them from the beginning, made them male and female. Okay. What on earth did he just say real quick? That was a fancy way of saying of him defending the creation narrative that man and what, or that all of humanity came from Adam and Eve from two people. And it was descended and it had to go through the process of, you know, marrying sisters and brothers and, And then he said, it got far enough along that, praise God, we no longer have to do that. Now, you might be listening and you're like, well, I don't really know if that's true. And if it is, that's weird. Okay. I understand he's making a theological point to say that the marriage in itself is stronger than a blood relationship. That is what he's trying to establish. Okay. That even through, even though humanity is descended through two people, and they had, had at time had married family members and they know and that we no longer do that. The marriage bond is stronger and should be stronger than any other blood relationship. Okay, that's basically the point there. All right. <clears throat> For great evils are hence produced and great benefits both to families and to states. For there is nothing which so welds our life together as the love of man and wife. Pause real quick. Now we haven't gotten to the point where we get to start. I get to start pointing out where I need to get better because he's setting the stage of this, but think about, I want just think about the state of the United States of America, or if you're listening in other countries, we have a few people listening in other countries. Think about your country. When the family breaks down between the love of a man and wife, when people start cohabitating and having kids or when they just cohabitate and don't have kids or when divorce rates skyrocket or when you have like no fault divorce, you can just get divorced for anything. When you don't hold the marriage bond sacred, great evils are produced. And when the family is held together by the love of one man for one woman, great benefits happen both for the families and for the state. You know, there's a quote I really like from Theodore Roosevelt where he, you know, I've quoted it on the podcast many, many times. It's the opening of his biography and he, he goes through, he says, this, justice among the nations of mankind and the uplifting of humanity will only be brought about by those strong and daring men who love peace, but who love righteousness more than peace. And he goes through all this stuff and he says, but all of that is of dust. If the love of one man and one mom, woman and their joyful commitment to that of raising children is not held at the center of the most important things in life. So that was Theodore Roosevelt. St. John Chrysostom just said the exact same thing in whenever this was written, like 390, okay? There's some things, the reason we like traditional things around here is because traditional things don't change. They, they're, they, they're rooted in truth and truth does not change. That Whatever is true lasts and whatever lasts can be depended on. And when the love between a man and a woman falls apart, not a man and a woman, a man and his wife falls apart, it produces great evils. Back to the, back to the sermon. For this Many will lay aside even their arms, 
the love for the wife. Uh, for this, they will give up life itself. And Paul would never, without a reason and without an object, have spent so much pains on the subject as when he says here, wives be in subjection to your, unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Oh, and this is a great question. And why so? Because when they are in harmony, the children are well brought up and the domestics are in good order and neighbors and friends and relations enjoy the fragrance. But if it be otherwise, all is turned upside down and thrown into confusion. As just when the generals of an army are at peace with one another, all things are in due subordination. Whereas on the other hand, if they are at a variance, everything is turned upside down. So I say it is also here. Wherefore he says, wives be in subjection unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Okay, what did he just say? He says that it, it is a proper order for wives to be subject to their own husbands. So husbands are the head of their family. Okay. Male and female, man and wife, are equal before God in dignity. But God has ordered creation. He has ordered the family where men have headship over their family. Does that mean husbands can just boss their wives around? I mean, you could try if you, you're going to have a hard life. That's not, But that's not what it means. Headship is a lot about responsibility. Headship is a lot about carrying burdens. It is a lot about serving. It's a lot about dying to yourself. It's there. It's not just I'm in charge. We do what I say. It's I have responsibility. I'm the covering here. It's the buck stops with me. That's that's what headship means. And when that gets out, when that gets flipped, when that gets flipped, societies start to falter. Very bad. Families fall apart. Very bad. If you're wondering why feminism doesn't work. This is one of the reasons. Okay, it dis it changes the way God set things up. Okay, so continuing on, he says, "Yet how strange! For how then is it that when it is said elsewhere, if one did not bear farewell both to wife and to husband, he cannot follow me?" That was from Jesus. Jesus said, "You must be able to say goodbye to your wife and your and to your husband if it means if it keeps you from following Jesus." Okay, so he quotes him. He's asking a question. For if it is their duty to be in subjection as unto the Lord, how says he that they must depart from them for the Lord's sake? Yet their duty indeed it is. They're bound in duty. Oh, they're bound in duty. But as but the word as is not necessarily and universally expressive of exact equality. He either means this as knowing that you are servants of the Lord, which, by the way, is what he says elsewhere, that even though they may do it as for the husband's sake, yet they are primarily for the Lord's sake, or else he means when you obey your husband, do so as serving the Lord. For if he who resists these external authorities, those of governments, I mean, withstands the ordinance of God, much more does she who submits not herself to her husband. Such was God's will from the beginning." But let us take as our foundational position then that the husband occupies the place of the head and the wife the place of the body. Okay, going on to verse 23 and 24. Then he proceeds with arguments and that says, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is also the head of the church, being himself the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands and everything, be subject to your husbands and everything. And then after saying the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also of the church, he further adds, and he is the savior of the body. For indeed, the head is the saving health of the body. 
He has already laid down beforehand for man and wife the ground and provision of their love, assigning to each their proper place, to the one that is in authority and forethought, and to the other of that that of submission. And then, as then, the church, that is, both husbands and wives, is subject unto Christ, so also ye wives submit yourselves to your husband as unto God. Okay, real quick. So it, when I used, I used to officiate weddings. I don't officiate weddings anymore. And I would go through this passage and I would, I would root it in God's, in covenant, uh, in covenant. If you, you can't really, it's hard to read the Bible without understanding what covenant is. God makes covenants with humanity at each stage in the Bible and it all culminates in Jesus. So you have the, the very first covenant is with Noah and then with Abraham and then with Moses, and then with David, and all the covenants made with those four are culminated in Jesus and the kingdom of God and the, uh, his church, the bride. Okay, And you have to read the Bible through the covenant lens. So when we get to marriage, marriage as a covenant, as a display of Christ, it is covenantal. It's, a pro, it's, a, it's deeper than a contract. It's covenantal. And what he so what he is saying here when he talks about covenant and headship there is a covenantal aspect to this okay and the covenants only work the way they're supposed to if each person does their role in the covenant now thanks be to god when god makes a covenant with humanity every single time he takes the full burden upon himself (laughs) you just have to submit and obey like just do that but he takes on the full weight of it himself but when it comes to marriage, there are duties given in the covenant of marriage to make the covenant flourish. The purpose of the duties, the purpose of the roles is so that the covenant will flourish. And if the husband doesn't do his duty and the wife doesn't do her duty, the covenant does not flourish. Now, husbands, future husbands, you can't make your wife do her part of the covenant. You can't. That, that is not your job. You can only do your job, which is actually what most of this sermon is about. We're going to get there uh, soon. Okay. Husbands, he says, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. You have seen the measure of obedience. Hear also the measure of love. Would you have your wife obedient unto you as unto the church unto Christ? And every man was like, yes, I would love that. Ha Then he says, take then yourself the same provident care of her as Christ takes for the church. Ooh. What's he saying? You want your wife to be submissive to you? Do your duty. Do your job. Love her as Christ loves the church, take care of her as Christ takes care of the church. If you've read anything about church history, Jesus remains perfect and on his throne and the church is nuts. It's nuts. Absolutely nuts. All you have to do, you can pick up a popular version of church history, read it and you'll be like, oh, oh man. It's not, it's, it was not a smooth transition to hear. Whoa. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yet God did not, has not given up on his church. And he's, and he's saying to husbands, yeah, you got to put up with her crazy. 
You have to, because I put up with you. You got to love her through the ups and the downs. You got to lower through the hills and the valleys, through the emotional turns, the scowling, the envy, anything that comes, the tension, the cold shoulder. You got to love her. That's what he's saying. Take then yourself the same provident care for her as Christ takes for the church. Yeah, even if it shall be needful for you to give your life for her, yes, and to be cut into pieces 10,000 times, oh, okay, yep, and to endure and to undergo any suffering, whatever, refuse it not. Okay, here's where, here's a point where I'm going to say I need, I need to get better, okay? I just made a lot of jokes about, you know, the church being crazy and Jesus being steady and wives being crazy. And that's a joke. I hope you laughed. If you're a lady listening, you know, I hope you laughed. That was supposed to be funny. But there is times, you know, in marriage when when things get tense and, and your wife has a lot of power over you. <laughs> I used to make jokes that uh, God gave men all the responsibility, but he gave women all the power. Every husband knows his wife has more power over him than he has over her. It's, it's not even close. And my wife's, if she were to give me a cold shoulder, it, like, it hurts. It hurts. It, 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 I don't like it's. It's very painful. But something in me is like, well, I'm, I'm just gonna neglect you. Not neglect. Well, that's a strong word. Well, I'm just not gonna love you. I'm not gonna serve you. I'm gonna just. I'm gonna cold shoulder you back. That's an improper use. That's that's not that's not right. If my wife, for whatever reason, justified or unjustified, gives me a cold shoulder or talks sarcastically to me, it's my job. Not to do that, not to talk sarcastically back, not to turn a cold shoulder back. I shouldn't be doing that in the first place. I shouldn't. I should not be the one being making sarcastic comments that are inappropriate or hurtful. I shouldn't even be doing that. That's my bride. And the, I guess you could use the word the need to retaliate when my wife does something to me that I don't like is I, I need to get better there. I really, really need to get better. Uh, I am quick with my tongue. And so it's very easy for me to say a sarcastic comment back when I shouldn't. And I I need to get better there. So I'm not loving my wife well that way. Okay. Uh, He talked about getting knit or cut up into 10,000 pieces. Um, Okay. In the same way, then he has laid at his feet her who turned her back on him, who hated and spurned and disdained him, not by menaces, nor by violence, nor by terror, nor by anything else of the kind, but by his unwearied affection. So also do thou behave yourself towards your wife. Okay, what's he saying? Okay, so John Chrysostom has lived long enough to see about 400 years of church history. He, he has seen the great persecutions of the church. He has seen the church flourish. He's seen the Arian heresy, and he has seen the violence that has come. He's seen the political exiles. He's seen all of it, and he's saying that God didn't give up on his church. He didn't give up during violence. He did not give up during terror. He didn't give up on anything. He still continued to pour out affection upon his church, and you need to do that towards your wife. Yeah, and thou be, and thou though thou though you see her looking down upon you and disdaining and scorning you. Yet by your great thoughtfulness of her, by affection, by kindness, you will be able to lay her at your feet. For there is nothing more powerful to sway than these bonds, and especially for a husband and a wife. Okay, so I was just talking about how I'm, I, I, 
you know, I retaliate against my wife sometimes. And, you know, he, he openly admits that, you know, there's times in wives where, uh, in marriage where your wife can look at you with disdain or scorn. And he says, instead of retaliating, you need to use great thoughtfulness for her. Use affection, be kind so that you can lay her at her feet for there is nothing more powerful to sway than these bonds. And especially for a husband and his wife, what is he saying? He's saying that when you and I do what God has asked us to do, when we do our duty by loving our wife as we've loved the church, we actually remove all of those things that we think we're going to get rid of by retaliating or turning a cold shoulder or snapping back. We think that's going to get our wives to act better, but he's saying it's not, it's not, it's love and affection and being a ser- and being a servant for your wife, a servant indeed. Going back to the sermon, a servant indeed. One will be able, perhaps, to bind down by fear. <clears throat> so you could scare your wife into submission. Nay, not even him, for he will soon start away and be gone. <laughs> your your wife would leave if you you can. He's making a comparison. You could get a servant to submit to you out of fear, but he will soon run away. Your wife will do the same thing if you try fear. But the partners of one's life the mother of one's children, the foundation of one's every joy, one ought never to chain down by fear and menaces, but with love and good temper. Wow, what a line. But the partner of one's life, the mother of one's children, and the foundation of one's every joy, one ought never to chain down by fear and menaces, but with love and good temper. Wow. So one of the things I told Chelsea when we got, before we got married, she's like, why do you want, like, why do you want to marry me? Why do you want to, and I said, I told her a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons I had told her is like, I want you, I want you to be the mother of my children. And I, I love my, I'm obsessed with my children. We actually had a dance party earlier. We turned on some country music and I picked up my daughter and she likes to swing and dance. And my son thinks it's hilarious. He's only nine months and he thinks it's hilarious to watch. And My son, I'm teaching him how to wrestle with me, which means, you know, he's nine months old. I put him on my chest. He grabs my face and bites me. That's, that's what we're wrestling. And there is, there's no joy that I have this greater than playing with my kids. This, this is currently my greatest earthly joy. And I don't have any of that without my wife. I had written in her, um, you know, in a Christmas card earlier this year, I was like, Thank you. I told her, thank you for making all my dreams come true. Because I, I wouldn't have my beautiful children without my wife. And my wife, she's a great mom. And I wouldn't have well-behaved, happy children who can tell that they are loved without my wife. She spends all day with them. And so she is the foundation of one's every, she's the, my wife is the foundation of every joy that I have. Which is, which is crazy to think. Now, now if you're, you're like, no, Jesus is the, Come on, you you know what I mean. My, my wife has Jesus living in her. She can only do good things because of grace. She can only be a good mom and a good wife because of grace. So yes, just come come on. If you're like, rah, rah. I'm not saying you are. But the, wow, that's such a good line. But the partner of one's life, the mother of one's children, the foundation of one's every joy, one ought never to chain down by fear and menaces, but with love and good temper. What sort of union is that where the wife trembles at her husband? That's a great question. A wife should not be afraid of her husband. We talked we talked about that on the podcast a few weeks ago. I said, guard what has been trusted to you. You need to guard her from your mouth and your temper. Go listen to that podcast if you haven't. 
And what sort of pleasure will the husband himself enjoy if he dwells with his wife as a slave and not as with a free woman? Yeah, though you should suffer anything on her account, do not upbraid her, for neither did Christ do this. Wow. Wow. God has never upbraided us. He's never come down and scolded us. He's disciplined us. You can tell when you're being disciplined, but he's never come down and upbraided us. I've never heard Jesus tell me to submit to him. I do it just because he loved. Wow. Okay. All right. So going on verse 26, he says uh, it's written and gave himself up. He says for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it. Okay. And so John Chrysostom continues with his sermon. So then she was unclean. So then she had blemishes. So then she was unsightly. So then she was worthless. Whatsoever kind of wife you shall take, yet shall you never take such a bride as the church when Christ took her, nor one so far removed from you as the church was from Christ. And yet for all of that, he did not abhor her, nor loathe her for her surpassing deformity. Would you hear her deformity described? Hear what Paul says. For once you were darkness. That's Ephesians 5.8. Did you see the blackness of her hue? What blacker than darkness? But look again at her boldness. Living, says he, in malice and envy. That's in Titus. Look again at her impurity. Disobedient. Foolish. That's in Romans. But what am I saying? The church was both foolish and of an evil tongue, and yet notwithstanding, though so many were her blemishes, yet he, capital he, get, yet did he give himself up for her in her deformity, as for one in the bloom of youth, as for one dearly beloved, as for one wonderful beauty. So the church is the ugliest bride that Jesus has ever had only bride he's ever had because of you know of our sin and the way we talk to each other and and yet jesus took us anyway and he's he's saying you'll never have a wife that's as ugly as the church as evil as the church as beautiful as the church and you need to love her anyway and you need to look at your wife the same way as jesus loves the church so I'm like wondering how many times I've focused on my wife's faults instead of her beauty. You know, I've, your first couple of years of marriage, I remember thinking, man, everything about my wife is is perfect, is is amazing. I didn't even, I didn't even care about her faults. I could just you know, and sometimes now we have two kids, and you know, we're it's like. If she doesn't do something for me, I get agitated. Or I like, you're not meeting my needs, or you didn't do this for me, or I'm just like a whiny little guy. That's a man. Hmm. Probably should focus more on what is good about my wife, what is noble, what is excellent, what is true than. Excuse me. This throat thing is bothering me. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. Okay. (coughs) 
he continues that he might sanctify her, have, that he might have sanctified it. He's, Paul goes back to talking about the church and cleanse it. He proceeds by a washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in a, a glorious church, having not spot nor wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. Okay. So by the washing or labor, he washes her uncleanness. By the word, he says, what word? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're washed, okay? And not simply as he adorned her. That's a reference to baptism, by the way. And not simply he has adorned her, but he has made her glorious, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Let us then also seek after this beauty ourselves, and we shall be able to create it. Seek not thou at your wife's hand things which she is not able to possess. Do you see that the church had all things in her Lord's hands? By him was made glorious. By him was made pure. By him was made without blemish. Turn not your back on your wife because of her deformity. Here the scripture says, The bee is little among such a fly, but her fruit is the, is the chief of sweet things. That's about honey. She is God's fashioning. You reproach her not, but him that made her, what can the woman do? Praise her not for her beauty. Praise and hatred and love based on personal beauty belong to unchastened souls. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Seek thou for beauty of soul. Imitate the bridegroom of the church. Outward beauty is full of conceit and great license and throws men into jealousy. And the thing often makes you su suspect monstrous things. But has it any pleasure? For the first or the second month, perhaps, <laughs> that's, man, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, your, your wife's the most beautiful the first two months, perhaps at most for the year, but then she no longer, the admiration by familiarity wastes away. Meanwhile, the evils which arose from the beauty still abide, the pride, the folly, and the contemptuousness. Whereas in one who is not such, there is nothing of this kind, but the loving having begun on just ground still continues ardent since it's the object, since its object is the beauty of soul and not of body. Ah, man. Beauty of soul. I'm thinking that kind of goes back to what I was saying ab above where I'm, Instead of thinking about what's good, right, and true, I mean, instead, I haven't, have I looked recently at the soul of my wife, at her gentleness, at her faith, at her prayer, at the kindness, and but also the deep convictions that she holds. My wife has this really great ability to hold deep convictions without judging other people, and I have deep convictions <laughs> and judge other people, because, and I, I need to be more like my, my wife that way, and I'm... I have a I have a very beautiful wife, and um. But when was the last time I looked at the beauty of her soul, and not just her body? I could do better at that. Yeah, I could do better at that. It was very interesting to say. Um, so men, you know, if you've, <laughs> I had a friend once tell me, women don't stop being hot after you get married, and that that's true. And one of the things, <coughs> excuse me, that one of the lines that here that just stuck out to me was the admiration of familiarity wastes away. I remember the very first time I met my wife, I, I could not believe how beautiful she was. 
And I remember the very first time I saw, you know, a beautiful church and I couldn't believe how it is. And it's amazing that something that's familiar becomes normal. It's nowhere near as awe-inspiring as it was before. And you have to be, make diligent effort to look at the beauty and not let the familiarity cloud out what is was beautiful. And I'm wondering if the beauty of my wife's soul has become so familiar that I don't even recognize it. And I probably should. Huh. Okay. What better, tell me, than heaven? What better than the stars? Tell me of what body you will, yet there is none so fair. Tell me of what eyes you will, yet there are none sparkling. When these were created, the very angels gazed with wonder, and we gaze with wonder now, yet not in the same degree as at first. Such is familiarity. Things do not strike us in the same degree. How much more... in the case of a wife. And if moreover disease comes too, all is at once fled. Let us seek in a wife affectionateness, modest mindedness, gentleness. These are the characteristics of beauty. And my wife is affectionate, modest, and very gentle. Very, very gentle. But loveliness of a person let us not seek, nor upbraid her upon these points. So. Don't get mad at a woman if she's beautiful, <laughs> over which she has no power. Nay, rather, let us not upbraid at all. It were rudeness. Okay. I I I did say this on, on the podcast about gardening, entrusted to you. I have never upbraided my wife. I've never let loose. On my, I've never yelled. I've never lost my temper at my wife. Never. And if you're a man who does do that, you need to stop immediately. End of story. Like, it's got to stop. We've talked about your physical aggression. We've talked about how that changes your voice, how it changes how you receive. Your wife, (coughs) your wife should not be scared of you at all. And you need to repent and figure out how to get your tongue under control and your temper under control if you're upbraiding your wife. Because that is no good. Not at all. Okay. Uh, But let me see. Where was I? I gotta find my spot. Do you know? Do you not see how many, after living with beautiful wives, have ended up ended their lives pitiably, and how many who have lived with those of no great beauty have run on to extreme old age with great enjoyment? Let us wipe off the spot that is within. Let us smooth the wrinkles that are within. Let us do away with blemishes that are on the soul. Such is the beauty that God requires. Let us make her fair in God's sight, not in our own. Let us look not for wealth nor for that of high birth, which is outward, but for that true nobility, which is in the soul. Let no one endure to get rich by a wife, for such riches are base and disgraceful. No, by no means let anyone seek to get rich from this source. For they who desire to be rich shall fall into a temptation and a snare, and many foolish and lustful, hurtful lusts, and they go into destruction and perdition. That's in First Timothy chapter 6. Seek not therefore your wife's abundance of wealth, for you shall find everything else go well. Who, tell me, would you overlook the most important things to attend to those which are less so? And yet, alas, this is in every case our feeling. Yes, if we have a son, we concern ourselves not how he may be made virtuous, but how we may get him a rich wife, not how he may be well-mannered, but well-moneyed. If we follow a business, we inquire not how it should be, may be made be clear of sin but how it may bring us profit 
and everything has become money, unless everything has corrupted and ruined because that passion possesses us. Okay, we're going to go ahead and stop there because we are, what is that, 46 minutes into the podcast, uh, right as he gets into, even so, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. So we will do another episode on that because we had to get through all the other stuff you know, about submission and then getting into uh, loving your wife and washing her with the word. And so one thing I'm taking away from this sermon is focusing on the soul of my wife, the deep center of who she is, her faith, her love for God, her love for her neighbor, her love for our children, the joy that she brings me. Everything everything that I enjoy in life has come from my wife. Like the not enjoy as in, you know, I enjoy hiking. That isn't because of my wife. The deepest joys I have, prayer with my family, dinner with my family, my children is because of my wife. And it's it's time for me to look deeply at her soul and to appreciate it and then to see what that beautiful soul is and who it could become and to water and nourish and cherish that center. That is the most important thing that I can do for my wife. And so that's what how I'm going to learn to love my wife. That's how I'm going to get better at loving my wife. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Institute of Men podcast. My name is Keaton Tucker. If you liked this episode, please leave us a five-star review. If you didn't like this episode, pretend you didn't listen. That also helps us out. Until next time, I'm Keaton Tucker, and this is the Institute of Men podcast.